Good evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Tonight, we continue our story, The Hound of the Baskervilles, by Arthur Conan Doyle, Chapter 7, The Stapletons of Merripit House. The fresh beauty of the following morning did something to efface from our minds, a grim and gray impression which had been left upon both of us by our first experience of Baskerville Hall. As Sir Henry and I sat at breakfast, the sunlight flooded in the high mullion windows, throwing watery patches of color from the coats of arms which covered them. The dark paneling glowed like bronze in the golden rays, and it was hard to realize that this was indeed the chamber which had struck such a gloom into our souls upon the evening before. I guess it is ourselves and not the house that we have to blame, said the baronet. We were tired with our journey and chilled by our drive, so we took a gray view of the place. Now we are fresh and well, so all is cheerful once more. And yet it was not entirely a question of imagination, I answered. Did you, for example, happen to hear someone, a woman, I think, sobbing in the night? That is curious, for I did, when I was half asleep, fancy that I heard something of the sort. I waited quite a time, but there was no more of it, so I concluded that it was all a dream. I heard it distinctly, and I am sure that it really was the sob of a woman. We must ask about this right away. He rang the bell and asked Barrymore whether he could account for our experience. It seemed to me that the pallid features of the butler turned a shade paler still as he listened to his master's questions. There were only two women in the house, Sir Henry, he answered. One is the scullery maid, who sleeps in the other wing. The other is my wife, and I can answer for it that the sound could not have come from her. And yet he lied as he said it, for it chanced that after breakfast I met Miss Barrymore in the long corridor with the sun full upon her face. She was a large, impassive, heavy-featured woman with a stern-set expression of mouth. But her telltale eyes were red and glanced at me from between swollen lids. It was she, then, who wept in the night, and if she did so, her husband must know it. Yet he had taken the obvious risk of discovery in declaring that it was not so. Why had he done this? And why did she weep so bitterly? Already round this pale-faced, handsome, black-bearded man, there was gathering an atmosphere of mystery and of gloom. It was he who had been the first to discover the body of Sir Charles, and we had only his word for all the circumstances which led up to the old man's death. Was it possible that it was Barrymore after all whom we had seen in the cab in Regent Street? The beard might well have been the same. The cabman had described a somewhat shorter man, but such an impression might easily have been erroneous. 
How could I settle the point forever? Obviously, the first thing to do was to see the Grimpen postmaster and find whether the test telegram had really been placed in Barrymore's own hands. Be the answer what it might, I should at least have something to report to Sherlock Holmes. Sir Henry had numerous papers to examine after breakfast, so the time was propitious for my excursion. It was a pleasant walk of four miles along the edge of the moor, leading me at last to a small grey hamlet, in which two larger buildings, which proved to be the inn and the house of Dr. Mortimer, stood high above the rest. The postmaster, who was also the village grocer, had a clear recollection of the telegram. "'Certainly, sir,' said he. "'I had the telegram delivered to Mr. Barrymore exactly as directed. "'Who delivered it? "'My boy here, James. "'You delivered that telegram to Mr. Barrymore at the hall last week, did you not?' "'Yes, father, I delivered it.' "'Into his own hands?' I asked. "'Well, he was up in the loft at the time so that I could not put it into his own hands. "'But I gave it into Mrs. Barrymore's hands.' and she promised to deliver it at once. Did you see Mr. Barrymore? No, sir, I tell you, he was in the loft. If you didn't see him, how do you know he was in the loft? Well, surely his own wife ought to know where he is, said the postmaster testily. Didn't he get the telegram? If there is any mistake, it is for Mr. Barrymore himself to complain. It seemed hopeless to pursue this inquiry any farther, but it was clear that in spite of Holmes's ruse, we had no proof that Barrymore had not been in London all the time. Suppose that it were so. Suppose that the same man had been the last who had seen Sir Charles alive and the first to dog the new heir when he returned to England. What then? Was he the agent of others, or had he some sinister design of his own? What interest could he have in persecuting the Baskerville family? I thought of the strange warning clipped out of the leading article of the Times. Was that his work? Or was it possibly the doing of someone who was bent upon counteracting his schemes? The only conceivable motive was that which had been suggested by Sir Henry, that if the family could be scared away, a comfortable and permanent home could be secured for the Barrymores. Surely such an explanation as that would be quite inadequate to account for the deep and subtle scheming which seemed to be weaving an invisible net around the young baronet. Holmes himself had said that no more complex case had come to him in all the long series of his sensational investigations. I prayed as I walked back along the grey, lonely road that my friend might soon be freed from his preoccupations and able to come down to take this heavy burden of responsibility from my shoulders. Suddenly, my thoughts were interrupted by the sound of running feet behind me, and a voice which called me by name. I turned, expecting to see Dr. Mortimer, but to my surprise, it was a stranger who was pursuing me. He was a small, slim, clean-shaven, prim-faced man, flaxen-haired and lean-jawed, between thirty and forty years of age, dressed in a grey suit and wearing a straw hat. A tin box for botanical specimens hung over his shoulder, and he carried a green butterfly net in one of his hands. "'You will, I am sure, excuse my presumption, Dr. Watson,' said he, as he came panting up to where I stood. 
here on the moor, we are homely folk, and do not wait for formal introductions. You may possibly have heard my name from our mutual friend Mortimer. I am Stapleton of Merripit House. Yarnett and Box would have told me as much, said I, for I knew that Mr. Stapleton was a naturalist, but how did you know me? I've been calling on Mortimer, and he pointed you out to me from the window of his surgery as you passed. As our road lay the same way, I thought that I would overtake you and introduce myself. I trust that Sir Henry is none the worse for his journey. He is very well, thank you. We were all rather afraid that after the sad death of Sir Charles, the new baronet might refuse to live here. It is asking much of a wealthy man to come down and bury himself in a place of this kind. But I need not tell you that it means a very great deal to the countryside. Sir Henry has, I suppose, no superstitious fears in the matter. I do not think that is likely. Of course you know the legend of the fiend dog which haunts the family. I have heard it. It is extraordinary how credulous the peasants are around here. Any number of them are ready to swear that they have seen such a creature upon the moor. He spoke with a smile, but I seemed to read in his eyes that he took the matter more seriously. The story took a great hold upon the imagination of Sir Charles, and I have no doubt that it led to his tragic end. But how? His nerves were so worked up that the appearance of any dog might have had a fatal effect upon his diseased heart. I fancy that he really did see something of the kind upon that last night in the yew alley. I feared that some disaster might occur, for I was very fond of the old man, and I knew that his heart was weak. How did you know that? My friend Mortimer told me. You think then that some dog pursued Sir Charles and... You think then that some dog pursued Sir Charles and that he died of fright in consequence? Have you any better explanation? I have not come to any conclusion. Has Mr. Sherlock Holmes? The words took away my breath for an instant, but a glance at the placid face and steadfast eyes of my companion showed that no surprise was intended. It is useless for us to pretend that we do not know you, Dr. Watson, said he. The records of your detective have reached us here, and you could not celebrate him without being known yourself. When Mortimer told me your name, he could not deny your identity. If you are here, then it follows that Mr. Sherlock Holmes is interesting himself in the matter, and I am naturally curious to know what view he may take. I am afraid that I cannot answer that question. May I ask if he's going to honor us with a visit himself? He cannot leave town at present. He has other cases which engage his attention. What a pity. He might throw some light on that which is so dark to us. But as to your own researches, if there is any possible way in which I can be of service to you, I trust that you will command me. If I had any indication of the nature of your suspicions, or how you propose to investigate the case, 
I might perhaps even now give you some aid or advice. I assure you that I am simply here upon a visit to my friend, Sir Henry, and that I need no help of any kind. Excellent, said Stapleton. You are perfectly right to be wary and discreet. I am justly reproved for what I feel was an unjustifiable intrusion, and I promise you that I will not mention the matter again. We had come to a point where a narrow, grassy path struck off from the road and wound away across the moor. A steep, boulder-sprinkled hill lay upon the right, which had in bygone days been cut into a granite quarry. The face which was turned towards us formed a dark cliff, with ferns and brambles growing in its niches. From over a distant rise there floated a grey plume of smoke. A moderate walk along this moor path brings us to Merripit House, said he. Perhaps you will spare an hour that I may have the pleasure of introducing you to my sister. My first thought was that I should be by Sir Henry's side, but then I remembered the pile of papers and bills with which his study table was littered. It was certain that I could not help with those, and Holmes had expressly said that I should study the neighbors upon the moor. I accepted Stapleton's invitation, and we turned together down the path. Oh, wait, Stapleton. A moderate walk along this moor path brings us to Merripit House, said he. Perhaps you will spare an hour that I may have the pleasure of introducing you to my sister. My first thought was that I should be by Sir Henry's side, but then I remembered the pile of papers and bills with which his study table was littered. It was certain that I could not help with those, and Holmes had expressly said that I should study the neighbors upon the moor. I accepted Stapleton's invitation, and we turned together down the path. It is a wonderful place, the moor, said he, looking round over the undulating downs, long green rollers with crests of jagged granite foaming up into fantastic surges. You never tire of the moor. You cannot think the wonderful secrets which it contains. It is so vast and so barren and so mysterious. You know it well, then. I have only been here two years. The residents would call me a newcomer. We came shortly after Sir Charles settled, but my tastes led me to explore every part of the country round, and I should think that there are few men who know it better than I do. Is it hard to know? Very hard. You see, for example, this great plain to the north there with the odd hills breaking out of it? Do you observe anything remarkable about that? It would be a rare place for a gallop. You would naturally think so, and the thought has cost several their lives before now. You notice those bright green spots scattered thickly over it? Yes. They seem more fertile than the rest. Stapleton laughed. That is the great Grimpen Mire, said he. A false step yonder means death to man or beast. Only yesterday I saw one of the moor ponies wander into it. He never came out. I saw his head for quite a long time craning out of the bog hole, but it sucked him down at last. Even in dry seasons it is a danger to cross it, but 
After these autumn rains, it is an awful place. And yet I can find my way to the very heart of it and return alive. By George, there's another of those miserable ponies. Something brown was rolling and tossing among the green sedges. Then a long, agonized, writhing neck shot upward, and a dreadful cry echoed over the moor. It turned me cold with horror. But my companion's nerves seemed to be stronger than mine. It's gone, said he. The mire has him. Two in two days, and many more perhaps, for they get in the way of going there in the dry weather and never know the difference until the mire has them in its clutches. It's a bad place, the great Grimpen Mire. And you say you can penetrate it? Yes. There are one or two paths which a very active man can take. I have found them out. But why should you wish to go into so horrible a place? Well, you see the hills beyond. They are really islands, cut off on all sides by the impassable mire, which has crawled round them in the course of years. That is where the rare plants and the butterflies are, if you have the wit to reach them. I shall try my luck some day. He looked at me with a surprised face. For God's sake, put such an idea out of your mind, said he. Your blood would be upon my head. I assure you that there would not be the least chance of your coming back alive. It is only by remembering certain complex landmarks that I am able to do it. Hello, I cried. What is that? A long, low moan, indescribably sad, swept over the moor. It filled the whole air, and yet it was impossible to say whence it came. From a dull murmur it swelled into a deep roar, and then sank back into a melancholy, throbbing murmur once again. Stapleton looked at me with a curious expression in his face. Odd place, the moor, said he. But what is it? The peasants say it is the hound the Baskervilles, calling for its prey. I've heard it once or twice before, but never quite so loud. I looked round with a chill of fear in my heart at the huge swelling plain mottled with the green patches of rushes. Nothing stirred over the vast expanse save a pair of ravens, which croaked loudly from a tour behind us. You are an educated man. You don't believe such nonsense as that, said I. What do you think is the cause of so strange a sound? Bogs make odd noises sometimes. It's the mud settling, or the water rising, or something. No, no, that was a living voice. Well, perhaps it was. Did you ever hear a bittern booming? No, I never did. It's a very rare bird, practically extinct in England now, but all things are possible upon the moor. Yes, I should not be surprised to learn that 
What we have heard is the cry of the last of the bitterns. It's the weirdest, strangest thing that I ever heard. Yes, it's rather an uncanny place altogether. Look at the hillside yonder. What do you make of those? The whole steep slope was covered with gray, circular rings of stone, a score of them at least. What are they? Sheep pens? No, they are the homes of our worthy ancestors. Prehistoric man lived thickly on the moor, and as no one in particular has lived there since, we find all his little arrangements exactly as he left them. These are his wigwams with the roofs off. You can even see his hearth and his couch if you have the curiosity to go inside. But it is quite a town. When was it inhabited? Neolithic man, no date. What did he do? He grazed his cattle on these slopes, and he learned to dig for tin when the bronze sword began to supersede the stone axe. Look at the great trench in the opposite hill. That is his mark. Yes, you will find some very singular points about the moor, Dr. Watson. Oh, excuse me an instant. It is surely Psychopodes. A small fly or moth had fluttered across our path, and in an instant Stapleton was rushing with extraordinary energy and speed in pursuit of it. To my dismay, the creature flew straight for the great mire, and my acquaintance never paused for an instant, bounding from tuft to tuft behind it, his green net waving in the air. His gray clothes and jerky, zigzag, irregular progress made him not unlike some huge moth himself. I was standing watching his pursuit with a mixture of admiration for his extraordinary activity and fear lest he should lose his footing in the treacherous mire. When I heard the sound of steps and turning round, found a woman near me upon the path. She had come from the direction in which the plume of smoke indicated the position of Merripit House but the dip of the moor had hid her until she was quite close. I could not doubt that this was the Miss Stapleton of whom I have been told, since ladies of any sort must be few upon the moor, and I remembered that I had heard someone describe her as being a beauty. The woman who approached me was certainly that, and of a most uncommon type. There could not have been a greater contrast between brother and sister, for Stapleton was neutral-tinted, with light hair and gray eyes, while she was darker than any brunette whom I've seen in England, slim, elegant, and tall. She had a proud, finely cut face, so regular that it might have seemed impassive, were it not for the sensitive mouth and the beautiful, dark, eager eyes. With her perfect figure and elegant dress, she was indeed a strange apparition upon a lonely moorland path, her eyes were on her brother as I turned. And then she quickened her pace towards me. I had raised my hat and was about to make some explanatory remark when her own words turned all my thoughts into a new channel. Go back, she said. Go straight back to London instantly. I could only stare at her in stupid surprise. Her eyes blazed at me and she tapped the ground impatiently with her foot. Why should I go back? I asked. 
I cannot explain, she spoke in a low, eager voice, with a curious lisp in her utterance. But for God's sake, do what I ask you. Go back and never set foot upon the moor again. But I have only just come. Man, man, she cried. Can you not tell when a warning is for your own good? Go back to London. Start tonight. Get away from this place at all costs. Hush, my brother is coming. Not a word of what I have said. Would you mind getting that orchid for me among the mare's tails yonder? We are very rich in orchids on the moor, though. Of course, you are rather late to see the beauties of the place. Stapleton had abandoned the chase and came back to us breathing hard and flushed with his exertions. Hello, Beryl, said he. And it seemed to me that the tone of his greeting was not altogether a cordial one. Well, Jack, you are very hot. Yes, I was chasing the Cyclopides. He's very rare and seldom found in the late autumn. What a pity that I should have missed him. He spoke unconcernedly. But his small light eyes glanced incessantly from the girl to me. You have introduced yourselves, I can see. Yes. I was telling Sir Henry that it was rather late for him to see the true beauties of the moor. Why, who do you think this is? I imagine that it must be Sir Henry Baskerville. No, no, said I. Only a humble commoner, but his friend. My name is Dr. Watson. A flush of vexation passed over her expressive face. We have been talking at cross-purposes, said she. Why, you had not very much time for talk, her brother remarked with the same questioning eyes. I talked as if Dr. Watson were a resident, instead of being merely a visitor, said she. It cannot much matter to him whether it is early or late for the orchids, but you will come on, will you not, and see Merripit House? We'll continue our story on our next episode. We're always on the hunt for great stories like these to feature on the show. You can send your suggestions to bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bedtime. If you found some value in our storytelling tonight, don't forget to show the love. There's a buy me a coffee link on every post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>